Well, good morning. Good morning, Soar Church family. So good to be with you guys this morning. Good morning to you if you're new here. My name is Dan. I'm excited that you're here. It's good to be with the people of God, worshiping God, right? On the day of the Lord, the day that the Lord has made, the day of salvation. That's what today is, right? Amen. Amen. Well, today we're kicking off a new series on the Ten Commandments. And I don't want to delay it any longer, so I'm going to pray. Uh, and then I, when I'm done praying, I'm going to kind of walk through an explanation for why we're going to teach on the Ten Commandments. And then we're going to cover the first commandment. So, again, let me begin with a word of prayer. Uh, bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, I pray that our prayer would become the prayer of the psalmist in 119, where he says, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Lord, that's our desire this morning. Through your word, would you teach us your statutes? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So like I said, we're kicking off this new series on the Ten Commandments. And some of you may be wondering, how can a church that claims to prioritize the gospel preach on the law of God? Or you may be wondering, what does the law of God have to do with Christians? And aren't we under grace, not under law? How many of you have heard questions like that? Or how many of you have had those kind of questions yourself um, as you think about the Ten Commandments? Well, as Christians, we want to have a biblical understanding of the relationship between law and gospel. We need to have a biblical understanding of that. Um, We cannot simply just dismiss the law as being irrelevant. Um, For too many Christians, the Old Testament has no role, no place, no significance to your walk with God. But do you know? that the early church, that the Old Testament was their Bible. It was their Bible. And the New Testament is simply an exposition of the Old Testament, making those things that were in shadow form in the Old Testament clearer for the church. And so it's important for us to have a biblical understanding of the relationship between the, the law of God and the gospel of God. And so let's begin by looking at the very words of Jesus as he talks about his law. In Matthew 5, 17 and 19, he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. Do we believe him there? Is that until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Basically, he's saying the smallest mark in any word or letter in the law will not be done away with until heaven and earth passes away. In verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I don't know about you, but it is not my goal. It is not my desire to be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. And according to Jesus, you are considered least in the kingdom of heaven if you diminish the law of God. If you say that this law is insignificant, unimportant, 
and you teach others to think and to act in the same way Jesus says that you are at least in this kingdom. But he says, those who teach them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Again, the words of Christ, Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40. Actually, Jesus is quoting Moses. He says, here's the passage, says, And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And verse 39, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is what is known as a summary of the law of God. A summary does not replace it. It simply explains what the goal, what the meaning of the law is about. It is to teach us to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself, and to leave us with some clues on how to do that well. That's what Jesus is saying here, as he quotes Moses. We also understand from this explanation, from this summary, that the law of God or the Ten Commandments, can be understood as having, as some theologians say, two tables. There are two tables of the law. What does that mean? Well, two tables being, you know, like in the movie Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston, you know, when he comes down, he's got the law, right? There's one side and then there's another side. Well, the two tables on one side of the law is vertical, our love for God. The second table or the second side is horizontal, our love for one another. And so that is what Jesus is saying. The summary of all that God has required, all that God has revealed to us is to get us on track with being clear about how to worship God, how to do that accurately, with great clarity, with reverence, so that we don't simply just make up our worship. Now, you can be really sincere in making up your worship, and it falls short of God's requirements for us. And that's a problem. Jesus encountered a woman in Samaria where he rebuked her and said that the true worshipers of God will worship in spirit and truth, but you Samaritans worship what you do not know. So I can't just give God some kind of pet name and say, hey, now when I'm worshiping this particular pet name, I'm referencing God. No, that is unacceptable in his sight. Likewise, when it comes to loving our neighbors, do you not know that it is love not to steal from your neighbor? And all the single people, roommates are looking at their roommates and said, yes, please stop eating my cereal. I had that problem with some roommates when I was single. Now I have that problem with kids. (laughs) So we need to have a biblical understanding of the relationship between the law of God and the gospel. And as Christians, we can't simply just close the book on the first half of our Bible. We need to understand what is the relationship between that and our faith. What is the relationship with that and our walk with Christ? And we're going to unpack this a little bit more. And I don't want to get up here and just start talking to you about something as if I'm the inventor of these things. I stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before me. That's at least what I'm trying to do. And so I want to look at what the church 
coming out of the Protestant Reformation, began to teach about the law and gospel and that relationship. And you guys understand the Protestant Reformation was for the church. It was a return to sola scriptura. It was a return to looking at the word of God as being the authority for the church, for life and faith. That's what the Protestant Reformation was about. And coming on the heels of that, many in the church wanted to leave as a witness for future generations. Hey, here's how we looked at the scriptures and understood some of the basic teachings and principles of the scriptures that, that, that equate to a summary of our Christian faith. Here it is right here in a confession. And so I want to read to you from the night, from the 1689 London Baptist Confession. I want to read from chapter 19. I want to look at article 5. It says this. Again, we're thinking about relationship between law and gospel. It says the moral law forever requires obedience of everyone, both those who are justified as well as others. Let me pause there for a moment because sometimes we don't think that the moral law applies to those who don't worship God. That's not what your Bible teaches you. And that's not what the church has understood in history. Now, we know that there's some good things about natural law, but what we need to understand about natural law is that natural law divorces itself from a creator who has all authority. We just simply say natural law, but then we have to ask ourselves, who is the giver of that natural law? That's why the moral law, as understood by the church, is that it requires the obedience of everyone. If your neighbor goes around murdering people, guess what? He has not only taken an innocent life, but he has violated God's holy law. And it is better for society that he does not do that. Amen? And so it says the obligation arises not only because of its content, but also because of the authority of God, the creator who gave it. Nor does Christ in any way dissolve this obligation in the gospel. Instead, he greatly strengthens it. Greatly strengthens it because we fall short of it. And his obedience is what we depend on. Article 6 says this, True believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be justified or condemned by it. Yet it is very useful to them and to others as a rule of life that informs them of the will of God. And their duty. It directs and obligates them to live according to its precepts. It also exposes the sinful corruptions of their natures, hearts, and lives. I mean, a clear example of this is when you are working with a little kid who takes something that they should not take. They know that they have violated something that is sacred and holy. That is the law of God written on their hearts. They understand that lying is wrong. You don't have to teach kids that those things are wrong they instinctively understand that that is the image of God that is God um, himself stamping and imprinting that on their nature and when we read it clearly in the law it it gives an even more of a, a heightened understanding of it now we know I need to hate this not only do I know that it's wrong but now that I've read it that you forbid it I need to despise it I need to hate it that's what he's saying here 
And so as they examine themselves in the light of the law, they come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred of sin, along with a clearer view of their need for Christ and the perfection of his obedience. The law is also useful to the regenerate to restrain their corruption because it forbids sin. The punishment threatened by the law shows them what their sins deserve and what troubles they may expect in this life due to their sin, even though they are freed from the curse and undiminished severity of it. And they're just simply saying, look, if you start playing with fire and you get burnt, you should have, you should have expected that. That's all it's saying. And when you see God's law and understand that it is a revelation of his holiness, his goodness, and his perfection, and you step outside of the bounds of that law, you should expect that not many good things are going to come to you in life. That's simply what they're saying. And so the promises of the law likewise show them God's approval of obedience and the blessings they, they may expect when they keep it, even though these blessings are not owed to them by the law as a covenant of works. More on that later. If people do good and refrain from evil because the law encourages good and discourages evil, that does not indicate that they are under the law and not under grace. And then I want to read the last article here in verse 7, I mean, uh, chapter 19, article 7. It says, these uses of the law are not contrary to the grace of the gospel, but are in sweet harmony with it. For the spirit of Christ subdues and enables the human will to do freely and cheerfully what the will of God as revealed in the law requires. What he's saying is that if when you come to faith in Christ, that the spirit of God indwells you, And that same spirit desires to honor and obey God and to keep his law. And his spirit empowers you in your obedience. That becomes a fruit, an evidence that Christ is in you. Now, you won't do that perfectly. But if we look at your life, we see that you are constantly moving in the direction of Christ. You're pursuing him. To be going sideways or backwards. That's a problem. That's a problem. And the law creates those boundaries, those clear running lanes. We run to Christ. So law and gospel, there's a harmony there. There's a relationship between law and gospel that is good, that is important for us Christians to understand. The law points to our need for the gospel, and the gospel establishes the law. The law points to our need for the gospel of Christ. And the gospel of Christ establishes the law. If you preach the gospel and you leave out an element of law, meaning falling short of God's holy demands, which is sin, according to 1 John 3, 4, then your gospel is somewhat truncated. It's not okay to simply talk about fallenness and brokenness and not mention the holy standard from which we have fallen, the standards from which we are too broken to meet. Because in Christ, we see that he met those standards. He suffered because we couldn't meet those standards. He was nailed to a Roman cross because we can't meet those standards perfectly. So the law points to our need for the gospel, and the gospel establishes the law. When we say amen to the gospel, we're saying, according to God's just and holy and righteous law, I am a sinner. I fall short. I cannot please God the way that I know I am meant to please him. 
I am relying upon, I am borrowing upon the grace of another, the obedience of another, and that other being Jesus Christ. So it is important that we have a biblical understanding of the relationship between law and gospel. Romans 3.31 says, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We uphold it. We show that God is righteous, that he is holy, and that sin has corrupted our natures, and that we need a Savior. So not only do we need to have a biblical understanding of the relationship between law and gospel, but we need to understand how the Bible uses the term law. It uses it, and it can imply a lot of different things. If we're not careful, if we're not careful to look at the text closely, I just want to kind of summarize a few of the things that you may have seen or observed in the Bible when you have seen the term law. In Scripture, it can mean the covenants that God made with his people. It can mean the covenants that he made with his people. God made a covenant with Adam, and he broke covenant. In other words, he broke the law of God. It can mean the first five books of the Bible or the writings of Moses, known as the Torah. Sometimes in Scripture, the law is a reference directly to the Ten Commandments. In other times, it's a reference to the ceremonial laws given to Israel. In other cases, the civil or judicial laws that governed ancient Israel. And in other places, the word of God is considered law because they are the words of a king. And we don't live under kingship in the natural sense. So we don't understand how important it is to obey the words of a king. To disobey a king is to risk death. And so the word of God is often thought of as law. Now we like to Soften it a little bit in our modern day and age and say it's just a love story, just a love letter. It's just this and that, right? You know, and it is. In some ways, there is story. There is an expression of love in its purest sense, in its most holy sense. But ultimately, it's a law word. They are not ten suggestions. They are ten commandments. When it says be holy, he is not saying if you so feel like it. When it says that you are to know the Lord, that you are to repent of sin, he's not saying if you feel like it or when you are ready. No, those are the words of a king. The law words of a king. So when we read the New Testament, we have to pay close attention to the context to understand exactly what aspect of the law that the writer is addressing. So the book of Romans, for example, is challenging the misuse and the misunderstanding of the moral law of God. The letter to the Galatians tackles primarily the issue of circumcision and the Jewish holidays and feasts that the church was trying to Embrace and trying to become more Jewish than Christ-like. The entire letter to the Hebrews or the book of Hebrews, which was one sermon, believe it or not, much longer than the one I'm going to deliver to you today. One sermon addressing temple worship, the entire sacrificial system, and this idea of the high priest. All of that being fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus being the true temple. 
Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus being the last high priest we will ever need. So in addressing some of the nuance regarding the law and scripture, the church in history has sought to place the law into three distinct categories. This threefold division of the law helps us to understand and see the relationship with the law and gospel more clearly. The first category is the civil and judicial law. These were the case laws. They were the laws governing the everyday life of Israel as a nation. They involved everything from property ownership to violent crimes to personal disputes. All of these things were, were, were governing the daily life of Israel. And when Israel ceased to become a nation... Those laws ended with Israel. But the church has understood that there is a general equity or a general um, principle that we are to glean from those laws given to ancient Israel. Paul, for example, quotes one of those laws and to the church in Corinth when he says, do not muzzle the ox while he treads. And he says God wasn't thinking about oxen at that time. He was thinking about people laboring, especially those laboring for the word of God and the ministry of God. And so, again, there is wisdom. There are principles that we can take from those judicial laws. Um, Some of them have to do with quarantining, how to, to take care of the sick. The second category is the ceremonial law. This had to do with the temple sacrifices, the special feasts, the special Sabbath celebrations, circumcisions, all of the ordinances. Some of you may not be aware of this, but some of the, the, the feasts and the special days in Israel, those were special Sabbaths. Sometimes, you know, they would have two or three Sabbaths, well, two Sabbaths in one week as they make a special celebration and then honor the Sabbath day. Jesus is the end of all of the ceremonial law. He is the true Sabbath. He gives us rest. From our strivings, trying to please God. He is the ultimate sacrifice, as we've already discussed. The third category is the moral law, which we've called the Ten Commandments. Now, realistically, all law is moral. All law puts forth a moral understanding. This is good. The opposite of it is bad. That's what law teaches. But for the sake of giving us Something to kind of put our teeth into and thinking about the Ten Commandments, the church has categorized it as the moral law. Now, Christ perfectly kept the Ten Commandments on our behalf. And so we're justified by faith in him. But the moral law or the Ten Commandments still remain. They still serve a purpose. They still play a role in the life of the, of the church. How many of you have kind of heard the expression regarding the culture and the way in which things change so quickly and the value shifting so fast? How many of you have heard the expression of the goalposts have moved? You guys understand that expression, right? You know, in football or in, I guess in soccer it would apply too, right? You know, you're trying to kick the ball through the goalposts. But if the goalposts keep moving, you don't know where to kick it. You don't know what scores, what ultimately produces a win. 
And the reason why that happens is because we have jettisoned this idea of the moral law being permanent for us. You see, if we keep this law, now the goalpost cannot move. And when someone tries to move the goalpost, we say, no. God Almighty, the Creator, has established these running lanes for us. We cannot go out of bounds here. I get it, we're concerned that we'll become legalists and that we'll focus only on the law. Again, using a sports analogy, if I'm only worried about stepping out of bounds while I'm running with the ball, I'm not going to be very good with moving the ball forward. But if I'm focused on getting the ball across the goal line and I am conscious of where out of bounds is, I can still make progress. I don't need to focus on the out-of-bounds line and then hope to get across the line. No, I'm going to run out of bounds. But if I know where out-of-bounds is, I can set my sights on the goals more clearly. That's what Galatians 3.24 tells us. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. 1 Timothy 1.8 says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And we need to talk about that. Let's look at the wrong uses of the law. A wrong use of the law is if we use the law as a means of personal justification. This happens often when people you know, think that they'll keep a tally of their good deeds. I've done this many good deeds, so therefore I'm good in God's sight. That is a wrong use of the law. No one can perfectly keep the law. When you fall short one time, at one point in the law, you're guilty of breaking all of the law. And therefore, according to uh, Romans, you are, the, the wages for your penalty is death. This is why Christ had to die on the cross. So we do not use the law as a personal as a means of personal justification. Another wrong use of the law is thinking that we are owed blessings and prosperity for good law keeping. That is prosperity preaching. It's prosperity gospel preaching. It says that if I do this, then I should be blessed. I should never, ever experience sadness, harm, delay, frustration in life. That is prosperity gospel preaching. That is a false gospel. That is a wrong use of the law. That leads to a lot of harm. It leads to a lot of harm. Again, it misses the goal of our faith. Jesus Christ, the suffering servant who perfectly kept every aspect of God's law. He suffered and then he died on a cross. and God raised him from the dead. And he's seated to the right hand of the Father and he's ruling and reigning right now. But let's not forget his earthly life. Perfect law-keeping does not mean that God owes you a blessing. Another wrong use of the law is adding or subtracting from the law of God. This is what the Pharisees were notorious for doing. They calculated how many steps a person could take on the Sabbath day before it was considered a violation of the Sabbath. That's how meticulous they were in terms of adding to the law of God. 
how much weight a person could carry, how far a person could travel, all of those things. They, they calculated that as a means of righteousness, and they held people accountable to their man-made laws and traditions. And Jesus consistently rebukes them for it. Let's look at the right use of the law. It's understanding the holiness and justice of God. The reason why justice seems so hard to define these days is because we don't look at the one who gives his royal and holy and perfect law. We don't think about his law. And so we're left to ourselves, and it changes with the wind. And sometimes it blows as strong as this Nebraska wind blows in terms of the change. It's all over the place. But the law of God teaches us about the holiness and the justice of God. It establishes Christ as the only way to be justified before God. And in Christ, it becomes a tool for growth and sanctification and wisdom for living. Now let's look at the Ten Commandments. Let's look at the Decalogue, right? Or, and the, the way the, the ancient Hebrews understood it, let's look at the Ten Words. This is from Exodus 20, verses 1 and 3. I'm going to read the preamble and the first commandment. And I want you to pay close attention to these words. There's not very many words here. God gives ten commandments. You look at the law book on the United States government, the federal government, man, that thing is heavy. It is full. Thousands of laws. Man-made laws. Because they continue to grow and grow and grow as their understanding of justice and holiness continues to, quote, evolve and progress. But God from eternity speaks a certain and absolute standard of truth. And so let's look at this very closely. In verse 1, it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. In verses 1 and 2, this is known as the preamble to the law. The preamble basically lays the groundwork, the foundation for why what follows is important, why you need to heed it, where the authority comes from, why it's significant to your life that you grasp what is about to be said to you. And what does God say in the preamble? He declares that he is God. He is your God. Very personal. I am your God. And the next Preaches the gospel. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You didn't work your way out of it. God, as an act of his own grace, love, and mercy, went in and took you out to establish you as his special possession. Or he even gives them the Ten Commandments. He preaches grace to them. I have saved you. You belong to me. You were suffering as a slave in Egypt. I went in and I made you my own. And now what follows, this is what will establish you as the redeemed community of God. And then he gives them the first commandment in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. That first commandment, short, simple, but rich. There's three things that are perfectly clear in that first commandment. 
The first one is this. There is only one living and true God. There's only one living and true God. The second thing is this. We owe our worship to God alone. Do you know that it is a sin for you to not worship God? It is a sin for you to withhold worship that rightfully belongs to your God and creator. It is a sin for you to forsake a gathering, a coming together to worship the Lord your God. And that makes us very uncomfortable because we don't like being told what to do. We don't like to feel like we are forced into doing something, like we have no choice. I use this analogy in the first service, probably not a good one. But some of us act as if, you know, God, God is raising us as drug babies. Like he drug us to church this morning so that we would have to be here. That's southern slang, not like the actual drug, but like <laughs> dr- that kind of drug, like dr- drag drug, you know. But think of heaven for a moment. It is the greatest delight and joy of every creature in heaven to offer their worship to God. The angels, they never tire of worshiping him. The saints that are now with him, it is their greatest delight and joy. Only sinful human hearts have a problem with giving God the worship that is rightly due him. It is a reflection of sin. It is an outworking of sin that we will not bow our knees before him, that we will not yield our wills to him, that we will not give him the thanks and the praise and the gratitude that he rightfully deserves. He said, I brought you out of the house of slavery. He woke you up this morning. He's given you life. You didn't ask to be on this planet, but you were in the mind of God. And he wanted you here. And sin keeps you from worshiping him. The third thing that the first commandment makes obviously clear is that our entire being and existence is always before the holy gaze of God. Every thought, every feeling, every fear, everything done in secret, all before the holy gaze of God. We need to be a people that live with more of an awakening in our hearts of the presence of God. We're all functionally agnostic. We think God doesn't see, that God isn't around, that he isn't near, that he doesn't know. We act and live that way. No wonder we struggle with holiness. We struggle with obeying him. We struggle with giving him the worship due. But that first commandment, that first commandment lays out for us really what amounts to the issue with all of the other commandments. When we refuse to honor God as God, all the other commandments, they go by the wayside. 
every commandment that we break begins with first breaking that first commandment. Not acknowledging that our lives, our existence is before the holy gaze of a holy God. And so he says, have no other gods before men. I want to tell you that God sits at the top of the food chain. He's at the top in terms of the hierarchy. And he looked around and there are no other gods out there. There are no other gods that could be given credit for making you and I and for making this planet. He looked around. There is no one else but him. He sits alone. He is not saying that there are other gods. But he is saying that the human heart is prone to making false gods. And do you know the biggest false God that we all struggle with on a day-to-day basis. It is the false God of self. It is self. We are self-reliant. We trust our own thinking. We place our wills first. We cannot distinguish or separate feelings from truth, especially when our feelings are hurt or offended. Biggest false God that we have to do battle with daily is self. This is why Jesus in Luke 9, 23 says that if you will follow after me, if you will be my disciple, you must take up your cross daily and deny self. Deny self. And you know what? The worship of God It makes denying self easier. Because now you realize he is God. He is the one living and true God. He is the creator and redeemer. My whole life is in his hands. The breath in my lungs come from his spirit. My whole being is in debt to him. And he is good. And now it becomes my joy and my delight to take up my cross. Even when it's hard, I will trust him. Yea, though he slay me, I will praise him. I will worship him. I will give him the worship that is rightfully due him. So church, we are to take seriously the law of God. We are to understand the relationship between law and gospel. And we are to take seriously what our God has said. That we are to have no other gods before him, beginning with the false god of self. So let us pray. And I pray that our prayer would become the prayer of the psalmist in 119 as we close this morning. The psalmist said, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. And I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Lord, that is our desire, that is our prayer. Teach us your statutes. In Christ's name we pray, amen.